Let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we do come before you asking that you would open our hearts, that you would work in us what is pleasing in your sight. We pray, Father, that all your promises to us would be welcomed and owned and believed and we pray that they would be appropriated as well, uh, that we might uh, please you in, in our gratitude of life. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Good Shepherd OPC of Richmond, Southwest Houston, I bring you greetings. Uh, greetings from the Saints in Longview. Greetings on behalf of the Home Missions Committee of our Presbytery of the Southwest. Greetings from my family also. It's a good thing. Uh, very thankful uh, to be able to be with you and to enjoy fellowship. Uh, thankful for the providence of being here. So today I want us to uh, turn together to Matthew chapter 16, if you would. Um, turn to Matthew and we will see the goodness of the Lord, His heart uh, toward His people. We will see that what we are to uh, taste of uh, and to see that the Lord is good and to give others something also to eat. Uh, in our society, in this city also, uh, even among often people who profess Jesus Christ, there is uh, pervasive blindness. Uh, there can be willful ignorance. Uh, there can be an unwillingness uh, to understand or consider the truth. It is all around us, uh, people suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. The Bible speaks of how the abundant prov provision of God is so richly evident to everyone, uh, to us in particular as His people. He shows us all the time in, in all our life how He is gracious and good and benevolent and generous. He gives us good gifts. He provides for our needs. He blesses us constantly. And He is merciful and gracious and long-suffering. And yet all mankind fails constantly to acknowledge Him or thank Him. The world has made itself central and the world wants to take all the credit for the good things that God has given. But really, it is not just the world, it's us too. We as Christians go about our own business and we so often choose to see things through a lens that doesn't even have God in it. And when we are in situations of need, we often refuse to come to Him. Oh, how am I going to solve this problem? How am I going to get through this challenging situation? We spend lots of time thinking of all the worldly causes and effects, how things might unfold, and how we ourselves want to accomplish what we want done, or how we might ourselves fail to get it done. But for all our expended energy, we don't remember the faithfulness of the Lord and His abundant provision, even through the discipline of the Lord. We just read, don't despise the discipline of the Lord. Hebrews repeats the same. His abundant provision to us comes in the hard circumstances as well. In being a ragtag people, uh, pilgrim people, in, uh, on the way to the, to the kingdom of God. 
We don't even remember often His promises, much less what we already know He is like. We forget. Or what He has told us, which is to ask Him, we don't remember. And to trust Him that He is there and that He sees and that He knows what to do and that our Lord will provide. That same stiff-necked failure to turn to God is the same story everywhere. It's the story of the whole world and it's the story of God's people in the Old Testament, the story of the apostles in the New Testament, and it's something that we can relate to also. So what then is the solution? Well, we are going to see. Matthew, uh, in his gospel leading up to our passage, has been showing his Jewish readers and us also, the Gentiles from the rest of the world, the love of Christ. Not just for Israel, but for whosoever will come. Of course, we know how the book ends with the resurrected Christ explicitly directing His love toward a lost and dying world, and not just to His people Israel, but in the Great Commission to all nations. We have that same message that God so loved the world that He gave His Son for them. But the love of God for His enemies and for the world is nothing new. And Matthew is showing his Jewish readers that love and provision of God for all from the Old Testament and from the New. In the passages and stories right before what we're going to read, we've seen the Jewish leaders concerned to maintain a separateness from the nations, from anything that is different or unclean. And we've seen Jesus draw back from them and go straight toward all those unclean peoples as a sign of God's love for the world and His intention to save the world and not simply those who are already His people. The Pharisees say, you and your disciples need to follow our traditions of separateness and ceremonial cleanness. You don't want to mess up your holiness by being around or touching what is unclean, like those Gentile outsiders. And the next thing Jesus does is go to the Gentile lands and He heals demon-possessed uh, demon daughter of a Canaanite woman and then he heals a whole bunch of Gentiles that are being brought to him and he feeds a crowd of 4,000 Gentiles just like he feeds the 5,000 in Israel and those crowds were receptive and wondering we think this is the son of David they are ready and eager to receive him like those foreigners the three wise men at the beginning of the book Remember the three wise men, the magi at Jesus' birth. But the love of God for the, lo the lost is offensive also to others. And the enemies of God are gathering together against Jesus. And so now let's read this text, uh, this next challenge that comes up to him uh, in, in Matthew's account. So let's read now Matthew 16, 1 through 12, as God 
speaks to us from His Word. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test Him, they asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the, facts that you, the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand? And how many baskets you gather? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand? And how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as the passage opens, we are back to a challenge by his enemies, as so often is the case uh, in, in uh, Matthew and the other Gospels. The Pharisees and the Sadducees together come to, to challenge him, to test him, it says here in the passage. Something that you don't want to miss right here uh, at the start is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees working together is itself a marvel. They were enemies of each other and were always fighting with each other. When Paul is arrested in Jerusalem and about to be killed by the Jews, he starts an argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And these two groups forget all about Paul because they want to fight with each other. And the Roman soldiers have to come and break it up and Paul gets rescued from them. The thing that gets them going is when Paul says that he believes in the resurrection. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection and the Sadducees, they don't. The Sadducees, you can remember this by, they are sad, you see, because they had no hope in the resurrection. And they also didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in an afterlife, they believe that when the body dies, the soul dies, and that's it. And they rejected all the rest of the Old Testament except for the first five books. The Pharisees completely accepted the Old Testament. That both God's people and His enemies live forever in heaven or hell. After the resurrection of the dead. They believed in angels and demons and the spiritual realm. And so the Sadducees and Pharisees were totally at odds. And the remarkable thing in this scene, not to be missed is that they are working together. They thinks makes you think of Psalm 2. They're gathered against, together against the Lord and His anointed. Uh, that almost never happened. It shows you how strongly they were both against Jesus. The only other times they are mentioned together in Matthew 
is when John was baptizing in chapter 3, and then when they all gathered together to crucify Jesus. This is the only appearance in the Bible where they are outside of Jerusalem. And so in verse 1, they both come to test him, and they open with a pretty good insult. Show us a sign from heaven. Now Jesus has done many signs, and they have discounted them all. So in saying here now, show us a sign from heaven, they are basically writing off all the other signs as nothing. All the healings, all the feedings, the teaching with authority. Show us something that is obviously from God. The things so far haven't been. It's like when God was saying through Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go. And then, over and over, that is rejected. All these signs that are there to convince Pharaoh that should have convinced Pharaoh. But then the magicians of the court came along and did their copycat signs by the dark arts, at least the ones they could copy. And so Pharaoh ignored God's real signs. Well, here both the Pharisees and the Sadducees are willfully ignoring what God has already plainly done in their sight. And they are saying, not enough evidence. See, it's a common argument. But it's not a matter of a lack of evidence that's at issue. But it is a matter of ignoring what is plainly there. And so they are blind because they want to be blind, because they don't want to believe in Him. The Gentile crowds in the last passage were recognizing the signs that Jesus did as predicted of the Jewish Messiah, who would be the Savior of the world. The people here who had studied the Scriptures and who should have known, they didn't want to know. So they were like Paul talks about in Romans 1, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And Jesus in verses 2 and 3 here essentially tells them, you know how to read the sky about good and bad weather, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. I think you could stick a question mark at the end of that and say, you know how to read the weather, but you don't know how to read the signs of the times. It's obvious that they should. So that's Jesus saying they actually can see the signs, but they don't want to see the signs. So they have been denying every sign, and now they are not going to get any more signs. In fact, the sign that He gives them or calls them back to remember is the sign of Jonah. And to make sense of what is happening, we need to know what the sign of Jonah is. That's why the most helpful thing is to read the entire story because I think he has the entire story in view. It is not just Jesus being three days and three nights there. That's not the sign of Jonah. So go read that. Go write, read that uh, this afternoon. I, I made uh, our home uh, congregation suffer through our Old Testament reading was the entire book of Jonah one day <laughs> on a Sunday morning. So. Uh, uh, but what kind of sign is the sign of Jonah? That's the question here. Well, first it's a sign that was put by God into their Bible. It was a story for them to read 
and think on that God put there to teach them about themselves. In the story of Jonah, we have a picture of the nation of Israel and what they were like. Jonah did not want to go to preach to the Gentile city who hated God and His people. Neither did Israel want to be a light to the nations as they were called to be. They had been told that they were supposed to let their light shine and to be an example to the rest of the world and that one day they would come streaming in to worship the living God. They were told in the renaming of Abram that God was going to save the world through a people that would come from Him. Abraham would be the father of many nations. And one day peoples from the whole world would come and they would worship at His footstool. They would praise His name. But they didn't want that. The Israel by the time of Christ did not want that. They didn't like that idea and so they hid the light under a bowl. They despised the foreigners that they were supposed to love as themselves. And so the sign of Jonah first is a sign showing what they were like. They did not want to reach out to people like that. Second, the sign of Jonah that Jesus is putting right in their face. He is saying, this is what their attitude also has been when there was interest in the things of God. When people came, when the tax collectors and sinners were interested, wanted to find out, and they were eating with Jesus. They don't like that at all. Ew, how can he do that? And after he has just fed the 5,000 in chapter 14 among the Jews, and then Jesus had gone and done these signs like meeting with a Canaanite woman, healing her daughter who was severely oppressed by a demon, and letting the sick at Gennesaret in Galilee of the Gentiles, letting them touch the fringe of His garment, and then healing the lame, the blind, the mute, and many others, and then feeding the 4,000 on that other shore of the Sea of Galilee. Those people, it says, who then glorify the God of Israel, that is too much for them. Matthew shows us the Jews saying, How come none of you are trying to scrub off the filth of all these people with the ceremonial washings? You are not even getting clean in God's eyes after you have done, been among them. And Jesus tells them it's what comes out of the heart that matters. What goes into the body or what you touch is not going to defile you. And all this to the Pharisees and scribes is even more irritating. You are breaking, they say, the tradition of the elders. So here in our passage in chapter 16, this is what Jesus is talking about when they are asking for a sign. You don't like the signs. There have been plenty of signs. What you are doing is just like Jonah when he saw the Gentile city of Nineveh repent. He did not like that one bit. I knew this would happen. This is why I did not want to go there. 
I did not want this to happen. Why? Because those people are unclean, wicked barbarians who deserve judgment. The sign of Jonah is the attitude of Israel shown in his attitude toward outsiders wanting to repent and come to God. Israel didn't want to go. And when Jesus came to those people and they wanted to worship God, they didn't want them to. They didn't want to accept or be in fellowship with them. They just wanted to get away and get washed up. And then thirdly, another way the sign of Jonah was assigned to them is what Jesus tells them back in Matthew 12, verses 40 and 41, where we read this. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The abundant mercy of God and how He treated them when they go their own way. How He rescues them out of trouble, even in their own rebellion, is on display. And then He redirects them. He redirects His sheep back onto the right path. You can see this in Jonah. Even as he goes kicking and screaming. And God's people also go grumbling in the right direction when they head in the right direction. Jonah got rescued out of the fish as a rebel. And then he went and, get, and did what God had sent him to do. And look how his simple and terse preaching was sufficient to cause them to repent. He complained beforehand, tried to go the other way. God corralled him and redirected him, said, I won't go. And he complained after they repented at the end of the book of Jonah. And I think in this uh, little short account of his message that he went and preached when he does finally go and do it, that he's just barely complying with what he was called to do. And what happens? The whole city immediately repents in sackcloth and ashes. He just gives the pinch of leaven, of the love of God, the call to repent. And one point I think uh, is that the simple preaching of Jonah, half-hearted, truncated, barely calling out to them, doing it because God made him, that was enough for them. And so that amount of evidence that there is a God in heaven, He's the God of Israel, He is calling you to repentance, that amount of evidence, if given to Israel, should be sufficient for them to radically turn to God and to follow Him vigorously, as those Gentiles did. They have had way more evidence and provision and blessing and perseverance and long-suffering with them. And so it shows that they are much more wicked than those that repented in Nineveh on just a little revelation. And so the sign of Jonah to these Jewish leaders is going to be sufficient. 
until such a time as the Son of Man dies and is raised from the dead, and then that can be the sign, be a sign of Jonah to them too. When Jesus is raised from the dead and proclaimed by the eyewitnesses who go, as the Apostle Paul did, and all the rest, then they will have ample cause and the evidence of the mercy of God too to turn and believe. When the gospel is made full and the apostles are sent to tell everyone everywhere about what God has done in raising Jesus from the dead, then surely they will believe, right? Well, not necessarily. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus. We are told in that story that Jesus tells, even if someone were to raise from the dead, they will not believe. Why is that? It's because apart from God's miraculously intervening with His power to give us new hearts, we are helplessly and hopelessly in bondage to our sins. And we will remain committed to be blind. The whole world is committed in its blindness to what is there. And it is something that is not easily overcome. It is not just a matter of evidence. It is not just a matter of education. It is not just a matter of persuasion. Medieval apologetics assumed that neutral man could simply reason himself toward a God and then the God and then a decision. But Jesus tells Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, that unless someone is born from above, they cannot even see the kingdom of God. The sight that we need is a supernatural sight that comes when God resurrects our dead hearts. And He does that not through the traditions of the Pharisees who say, you need to keep all these practices. And, he doesn't, and it doesn't come from keeping the Jewish laws that God gave to Israel simply. It comes by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and His paying for our sins on the cross. That is the ultimate apologetic tool, the gospel. It comes by trusting that Jesus died for your sins, that He has conquered your grave, and that He has gone to prepare a place for you. That message, that He will save all His people from all their sins and present them spotless on Judgment Day, because He sustained Judgment Day, that good news will draw all people to Himself, those far and those near. The rest of the passage here shows that even the apostles and disciples are themselves blind. They too need the patient care of Jesus to disciple them and lead them out of their blindness. And that is what has been happening in the feeding of the 5,000 and then the 4,000 and the signs that accompany those. He brings that to their remembrance. There were 12 baskets left over that represented something. There were seven baskets left over that also re represented something. Those represent the heart of God and the heart that should be in us. The 5,000 fed and the 12 baskets represented the Jews and the bounty sufficient 
to be taken to all the 12 tribes of Israel. The 4,000 represent the rest of the world. The Gentiles, like we're on the east side of the Sea of Galilee where that happened. And the seven baskets out of that meal, sufficient to feed the entire world. And so the lesson for us, for you who know and love the Good Shepherd, is to consider the heart of God. The heart that we see in Jesus, who would lead you and feed you beside still waters. Who would give you bounty for yourself, take and eat, and leftovers to feed the world. He wants to send you where He sent Jonah, to His enemies, to those who are far off, as well as those who are near, to those beyond the boundaries of the Reformed faith. Even as Paul went out uh, to all these cities and he went first to the synagogue, and those who came from among the Jews and believed took them, but all those also went with him to the Gentiles as well, those far off, to those beyond the circles of what seems normal and comfortable. And here in Houston you have the nations are all around you. You have idolaters worshiping other gods from the cradle who have no clue about the living God. You have those far and those near. You have drug addicts, whores, wealthy thieves. Go among them in your neighborhoods. Go among them in their neighborhoods and gather them up. Eat with them. Feed them the gospel. Take risks. Don't worry about any traditions of the elders in our circles about what we might be comfortable with. Feed whosoever will come. Go where the people respond. Cast your hook on one side of the boat and cast it on the other and see what God will do. And God promises that the miraculous opposite of your expectations will occur among those who seem like they might never be likely to come to faith or to be made the trophies of His grace. You will not become corrupted in your going. You will not be made unclean by pursuing the lost and unclean, but He will cause this whole godless and damned city to repent and to believe and to rejoice and to worship Him forever. That sign of Jonah is for you too. Take and eat and feed the hungry. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks and that uh, we who were far off, um, who have um, been apart from you, Father, we uh, rejoice uh, that you have drawn us near, that you're drawing the nations near, near, that just as you created all things by the word of your power, so also you can make all things new, uh, that you can raise up children for Abraham uh, from the dust. And Father, we do pray that you would be glorified 
uh, in uh, our activities uh, as we seek to reach a lost and dying world, uh, to call them to you and to the life of the world to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.